Africa is a land with endless stories to tell. From epic battles, brilliant rulers, and the dramatic rise and fall of civilizations, join us on the History of Africa podcast to learn the too often unknown stories of the African continent. From the sands of Cairo to the plains of Zimbabwe, and from the mountains of Ethiopia to the forests of the Congo, find the History of Africa podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. I've covered some intense subjects lately on this podcast. In the next few weeks, there are some similarly tough topics to come, including the Goering brothers and an exploration of exorcism. But as we head into the holiday season, this week I've decided to offer some lighter fare, and I'll be talking to a fascinating man who's been to more fascinating places than even the most avid traveler. Renowned travel writer Gary Arndt has visited over 400 UNESCO World Heritage Sites, over 200 countries and territories, and he once visited all seven continents in just one year. His traveling really began in 2007, when he sold his house and began a multi-year world trek. So Gary, what was it like going on a multi-year vacation? I wouldn't call it a vacation. Everybody thinks that traveling is a vacation and that you're just constantly in leisure mode the entire time. I had a, a pretty popular travel website, uh, social media accounts. So I was, I was working a lot of the time. I was traveling, but it wasn't vacation. When you embarked on that journey, how far out did you have it mapped out in terms of where you were going to go? Or was it just sort of wherever the wind took you? I made it up as I went along. There were only a couple parts of the trip where I had to plan in advance for an extended period of time. So when I was in the South Pacific, I had to buy plane tickets for like a month in advance, just because the flights were so hard to get in that part of the world. There were, it was really sketchy because, you know, airlines would go to business and it was just very difficult. So I think that was the longest I had ever, it was like one month was that I planned everything out ahead. Uh, other than that, I normally just would, would play it by ear. Um, I would arrive in a city and I'd stay there until I felt like I needed to go somewhere else. Was there any challenge with things like visas, for example? I mean, like being in a foreign country, potentially needing a visa to go to a third country as opposed to, you know, in the U.S., just contacting the local embassy or what have you. The only time visas really became an issue were some trips I did to Central Asia. And even then, like within some, well, in one case, one month. And in other case, like a, a year later, uh, they got rid of their visa requirements for Americans. I remember I had to jump through all these hoops to get a visa for Brazil. And it was just across the border in Argentina. So I had to go to the Brazilian consulate, did all this stuff, had to get money out of the ATM. And then two weeks after I did all this, they got rid of the visa requirement. Um, so I have a 10-year Brazil visa sitting in my passport that I, I don't really need anymore. What about things to like currency exchange? Because I remember when I was younger on one occasion, was in Eastern Europe for about a month, during which time Hungary and Croatia and Slovakia, they had inflation and then suddenly the currency would crash. And it was, that was just like a period of months dealing with fluctuating currencies. But when you were on this lengthy trip around the world, was that problematic in certain locations or? Not really. Uh, and that's because with ATM machines and credit cards, you can pretty much get by without having to carry a ton of cash around with you. And if you do, like I said, you just get it from an ATM machine. The only time that really becomes a problem 
is if you are in an area that has very high inflation with an official exchange rate, which is radically different from the exchange rate that you're going to see on the ground. And the best example I can think of today would be in Argentina. The official exchange rate that you're going to get from an ATM machine is much worse than the exchange rate you're going to get on the black market. And the black market in Argentina is is not very black. It's in the open. Everybody talks about it. It's very easy to find currency exchangers. So your best bet there would be to bring in some other currency, preferably US dollars, and then exchange it on the ground and everything will go a lot further. What about, I mean, you were obviously working during the trip, as you said, did you have any issues with internet connectivity and internet speed if you're trying to write your blog and articles and so forth in remote locations? I did at first. I started, so I started traveling in 2007. And in fact, I started in March of 2007, right between the period where Steve Jobs announced the iPhone and when it went on sale. So smartphones as we know it didn't exist when I started traveling. And at first it was, Wi-Fi was difficult to find. It would often be very slow. I would go to internet cafes. You don't really see internet cafes anymore because it's become so easy to, to get online. Now, when I travel, it's, it's trivial. I use T-Mobile as my mobile provider in the US and they do roaming in like 120 countries around the world. So if I go to any developed country, I don't even need to pop in a new SIM card necessarily. I'll still do that in some places. Uh, I haven't done it recently, but when I would fly, say, to the UK, by flying to Heathrow, they would have these vending machines and like three mobile would have a SIM card you could pop in for 30 days, unlimited. Plus it covered, I think, France, Ireland, Belgium, the Netherlands, and you know countries around the UK. And that was a much better deal in terms of the speed. And it was like 20 pounds, I think. So yeah, it's become much easier to get online than it was when I first started. In fact, I remember one of the things I bought when I started traveling was this little key fob that you would press a button and would tell you if there was a Wi-Fi signal. And it was the most useless thing I ever purchased. And I eventually just threw it away because in, in late 2007, I was in Tokyo and I bought an iPod Touch. And it just revolutionized everything because you had all these things that I would carry that were now all in one simple device. And the smartphone by far has been the most revolutionary thing for travel because it's made it so easy. If you have a mobile internet connection, I remember I rented a car in uh, Macedonia once. I drove around the Balkans. I had no problem. I could go into Google Maps, put in a route. It gave it to me efficiently. I had one major problem with Google Maps the entire time I was traveling. Other than that, yeah, it's, and it's, it's really good. You've obviously been some like pretty extreme locations in terms of nature, like the North Pole, Antarctica. What would you say physically was the most challenging environment or part of a trip that you've made? Oh, uh, that would be uh, the Danakil Depression in Ethiopia, by far. And walk, we, had, we did a hike to the uh, Erta Ale volcano. So the Danakil Depression is one of the lowest, hottest places on Earth. And the Erta Ale volcano is one of the only, it's basically a gigantic open lava pit that's kind of there permanently. And none of our guides told us what hiking there entailed, what it would involve. We had, you have to hike in the middle of the night to avoid the heat. When you get there, there's toxic fumes coming out. They didn't tell us about that. So it was kind of a, a disaster. And we, so you had to deal with dehydration and the fumes off the volcano and everything else. And that was probably one of the worst experiences I had. How long were you there for? Was it just like an overnight track type thing? Yeah, it wasn't, you know, I would do it again now that I know what it entails. 
Uh, I don't think it's inherently dangerous, but yeah, it was an overnight thing. They just didn't tell us anything about what we'd be doing. Right. You know, it says visit Erda Ali volcano. Now that could be, we pull up to a parking lot and walk a few steps and, and look at it. It turned out being basically a, you know, a full day trek there and back in an extremely hot environment. And they were giving us beer before it started, which is, you don't want to be drinking alcohol in an environment where you're going to dehydrate. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't what you were banking on at all. I saw also that on your website, on one occasion you were in Israel during Holy Week. I was wondering what that was like, because obviously you've got the ongoing, you know, periodic conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians, but you also have, even among the Christians, different Christian groups who have their portions of the Holy Sepulchre Church and stuff. So what was your experience like there when you were there for Holy Week? Uh, there were no issues in terms of like uh, Israeli-Palestinian stuff while I was there. I didn't, I didn't see anything. Uh, I, I've also been to, you know, the Palestinian areas as well. I know they, they flare up occasionally. I, I didn't see that. As far as like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is one of my favorite buildings in the world for the reasons that you cited, because it's so fascinating that there are all these groups that control it. They can't agree on anything. It's basically been driven by inaction for centuries. So I was there for the first time in 2009. And then I returned, I think in like 2015, 2016, they had cleaned the, the church quite a bit. They had fixed a lot, but there's still this problem of who controls what and it all dates back to a thing called the status quo agreement, which was in place in the mid-19th century. And if you go to the front of the building, you'll see a wooden ladder leaning up against a, a window ledge. And it's been there for over 150 years because nobody can agree to move the ladder. <laughs> yeah, bureaucracy, right? Now, obviously, the pandemic hit in you know a few years back. By that point in time, from what I understand, you weren't constantly traveling as you had done in the past, but I mean, you were still traveling pretty much. I had an apartment, but I was traveling a third to a half of every year. And then presumably too, in terms of income, I mean, you were doing a lot of work related to travel with your site and so forth and other publications. So both from a financial perspective and just from your routine perspective, the pandemic must have just been completely thrown you. Oh, it destroyed everything I had going on. I never, ever thought that the, the global travel and tourism industry would just collapse like that so quickly. But even before the pandemic started, I was starting to have problems with how the industry was being done online. That basically people that had travel websites were just doing SEO content. That's all it was. Your ability to travel and sharing stories, nobody was caring about that anymore. And, and this was basically the result of Facebook and Google kind of destroyed it. So when the pandemic hit, it was kind of the, the impetus I needed to change what I was doing. And mm -hmm. I had this idea of a podcast that I had a few years beforehand. I had the artwork done. I had the music picked out. But the original plan was to make it like really long episodes, closer to what Dan Carlin does. And I tried doing it and I realized that that was just probably not going to be viable to do an episode every two weeks. And when the pandemic started, I suddenly had a lot of free time in my hands and I realized, well, maybe I could do just the opposite. And the math worked much better on doing a daily show than something that was every other week. And uh, so I, I, I launched that in January of 20, in July of 2020. So when you say the math worked better for it, you're talking about time spent making it versus revenue. 
No, not time. I, I mean, I spend a lot of time on the show, probably more than damn near anyone else I know. The main issue is, yeah, as a business, you know, you're fun- if you're going to make money from advertising, it's really a function of how many ads can you run? So I do about an hour of content a week. The shows are about 10 minutes long. So it's a little more than an hour. You know, if you have one ad per episode or even two ads per episode, I don't think most people see that as, as really onerous. But if you put 14 ads in an episode, even an hour long episode, that would be ridiculous. Right. And so if you just split it up an hour's worth of content uh, every day, it just makes it a lot easier. Plus, every time you create something, it's an opportunity for someone to discover it. So mm-hmm. if somebody is looking for the Eiffel Tower on Apple Podcasts, they're going to see my show. If they're looking for the Great Wall of China, they'll see my show. Every time I do something, it's another opportunity for people to find me. So you can simply put more episodes out by doing shorter, more frequent episodes than you could doing it the other way around. And then in terms of doing it every day, I guess conceptually, because it's the everything, everywhere podcast, I mean, you can really just talk about anything you want. So there's no limitations that would cause you to run out of material. Yeah, I'm not worried about running out of material, but there are some things I'm not going to talk about. You know, one of the things I've, I've thought about doing was like some in-depth deep dive, well, some, at least a 10-minute dive into certain world religions. And I've not really touched on that because that's something that you have to get perfectly right. Because otherwise, there's going to be someone from that religion who is, you know, if you screw up, you know, a name or a date or something, that's not that big of a deal if you're talking about some invention. But when you start talking about religion, people take it a lot more personally. So I could still do that in the future. But if I do that, I'm going to like probably have somebody fact check it uh, to make sure that it, it, it at least sounds good. There are other things I don't really, I don't do anything with current events or politics. One of the things I noticed in, in re- doing research to prepare for the show was the biggest, there were two things that caused the most one-star reviews. One was having too many ads and the other was unnecessarily bringing up politics. And given the nature of the show, there's no reason for me to be talking about current events. There are plenty of other outlets for people to get that information. They don't need to get it with my show. Another thing that I've noticed too is that it seems pretty G-rated. I mean, so it's, I like it personally because you've got pretty eclectic taste that I can listen to. But at the same time, I can imagine for like younger kids that maybe see things they've learned in school, it's also accessible to them. So it's not talking about unpleasant things or bad language or anything that's kind of too adult. Is, so is that part of your strategy too, to make it kind of family friendly? Yes, but it, the reason I did it is there's one podcast that I've been listening to for years. It's a history show and the hosts are very foul mouthed and very raunchy. I have no problem with that, but there are a lot of people that do. And if you look at the reviews, it becomes very obvious. Advertisers do not want to advertise with them. There are guests they've tried to get on their show that will not appear because of what they heard on other episodes. And what I realized is there's really no benefit from using that kind of language on your show. I have no problems if people want to do it, but no one will listen because of it. And people will not listen if it is there. And what I then found, and I wasn't planning on this, is I had people writing me saying, oh, uh, you know, me and my kids love your show. We listen to it when we take them to, to school. And then I had teachers saying that they listen to the show in their classroom or students saying, you know, you're my favorite teacher. And well, now 
knowing that now I really can't start swearing or, uh, you know, there are some things in history where there's some king or an emperor that had a concubine or there were prostitutes, you know, that stuff happens and you do have to mention that, but yeah, for the most part, I've, I've kept it pretty clean and it's going to remain that way. But I, and mm-hmm. I should also mention one of the reasons why I've had some kids that enjoy the show is that in school, everything, like in a history class, everything is presented in a certain way. It's usually in some sort of linear fashion and maybe some parts of that are interesting and maybe some parts aren't. And there's really not a whole lot of room in our lives anymore for serendipity, discovering something by chance because we're fed algorithms all the time through social media and even Google. It's like, here's what we think you want, but sometimes you don't know what you want. If if you're only limited to your universe of things, you know, there might be things outside of that, which you just, you know, for some reason haven't, you know, come across and there's no way you could possibly encounter that. So I think the podcast and the random nature of it is kind of a selling point. And that's what a lot of people kind of like because they encounter things that they didn't even know that they didn't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's kind of like in um, 1984 where they narrowing the language they can use in the newspapers and stuff and dumbing things down. But then Winston Smith suddenly finds old books and things. And there's this whole other world out there that kids now don't really see because as you say, everything's just garnered towards what Mark Zuckerberg thinks they should be looking at. Right. And I, you know, I remember growing up pre-internet and you'd go to the library and I would just rummage around magazines and discover things that way, looking at different things, what might be there. And I think this notion of serendipity is, is kind of important. And, you know, I come across things just randomly. So the episode I'm going to be working on for tomorrow is I came across this article about this guy in Spain in the fifties who figured out a better way to throw a javelin that he could, if he threw it like a discus, this guy was 49 years old, overweight and doing this, he broke the world's record. He was not a javelin thrower. And there was this other guy who was a Kiwi in the seventies. And he worked with this guy who was a worked on biomechanics and they realized there was a better way to do the long jump. If you did a somersault to lean into your body's momentum rather than the way they do the long jump now, where you have to like reverse your position in midair to stick your feet out. But if you just do a somersault and let your feet come over your head and this guy who was a, you know, he was a college athlete, maybe not a great college athlete came within, I want to say half a meter of the world's record using this technique. Both of these techniques have been banned and you can't do them now, even though they're better ways of doing it. So it's kind of like the um, Frosby flop, I guess, if, I did an an episode on that, on Dick Fosbury. The difference was he he unveiled the technique at the Olympics and won the gold medal doing it. And if these guys had done the same thing at the Olympics and everyone started copying it right away, then they probably would be legal. The, The javelin one I kind of understand because you spin it around in a circle, which means that if it ever got loose from someone's hand... And the other thing is what they were doing is they started putting soap on their hands to let the javelin fly out with less friction. You know, you can see how that would be a recipe for disaster. Someone's going to accidentally play the javelin catch in a way that they don't want if it goes in the wrong direction. So the javelin, I can kind of see, but the long jump one's kind of stupid because they said it was dangerous. Well, then all of gymnastics is dangerous. Precisely. On the point too, I mean, it's like a daily podcast. That's a pretty big commitment. Do you take each story 
each day or do you kind of stockpile them a week ahead of time or something? And- Every day. The, the hard part is not the recording. Recording is super easy. Uh, the difficult part is the writing and research. So I, my shows now, the body of the show is about 2,000 words, which is about 10 minutes, maybe mm-hmm. a little more, depends. That, that's what takes a long time. Once that's done, then the, the system I have for recording is pretty easy. But, but that's what's preventing me from doing multiple shows uh, in a single day. It takes me about five hours to research a show. And doing all the other things that I would have to do, you know, as far as show promotion and everything else, I, doing two a day would be, I've done it, but it's, it's difficult. And is it every day always? I mean, even like Christmas and would you ever get a day off? Sometimes I'll run, I'll put a rerun show in. I call it an encore episode. And statistically, I know most people have not listened to those because the show keeps growing. So it's new to, to most people. And even if you're a regular listener, I mean, I've done 850 shows at this point. So there's right. a good chance you forgot it. During Christmas, I have some Christmas episodes that I've done in the past and I usually redo those. So I'll take a week off during Christmas. And maybe if I go to a conference or something and I'll do rerun shows. At some point, I would eventually like to hire a writer or two. And I think that should make it a lot easier for, then I could start actually recording them ahead of time mm-hmm. um, and, and maybe start traveling again a little bit more. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. So, I mean, now obviously the pandemic has finished for now, at least. Are you, despite your reservations about the travel community in terms of Google and all that kind of stuff, I mean, do you have intentions to get back into travel, blogging, writing? No. This, the, the podcast is so podcasting is so much better as a business. It's not even funny. In fact, I, I run ads on my website now. I'll probably take those off sometime next year. Or if I do, if I keep them, it'll, it'll just be a few ads. Website advertising is horrific in terms of the CPMs you get. The business isn't, it, it, it's not enjoyable for what you have to do in order to be successful. Whereas with the podcast, it's so much easier to grow an audience. If you think of a podcast download versus, say, a page view, which are kind of like the, I don't know, the closest thing you can get to an equivalent is like the atomic unit. I'm getting over 800,000 downloads a month on the podcast. I get maybe 140, 150,000 downloads or page views on my blog. And that's after 15 years. It's so much easier to grow a podcast because there's less competition. People become, they, they hear your voice. And they develop kind of an attachment or a relationship with that. Whereas the website is completely anonymous. You get someone that does a Google search, they click, they, they read, they leave. They don't even know where they were. They, they don't come back. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, 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 I don't foresee myself. If anything, I'd start another podcast, you know, a second one in addition to what I'm doing. Plus, I do not want to be reliant on just one industry like I was with travel. Right. I'm going to be reaching out to more travel brands to work with them, but I don't need them. Yeah, I'm not going to go back to that. If you've enjoyed my recent episodes relating to Africa, then I have a podcast recommendation for you. The History of South Africa podcast, hosted by Des Latham, has been awarded top 10 episode podcasts on Spotify in Africa for 2022. The weekly show has been on air for nearly two years and covers the history of South Africa chronologically. That's the History of South Africa wherever you get your podcasts, and I highly recommend it.